Good morning and welcome to GBC. I add my welcome to those of others before me. Um, we're going to be rounding out our series this morning on truths that transform. This is the final one and it's, uh, it's a real ripper. Um, and so I hope it's um, great for you guys as we get to look at it together. It's called Substitutionary Atonement. Um, some big words there. It'll all make sense as we go on. We're going to read the Bible to start. We're reading Exodus chapter 12. And it should come up on the screen for you, but you're invited to open your Bible or open your phone as we read through. We're going to read through verses 1 to verse 14. Exodus chapter 12, verse 1 through 14. Here it, says, here it goes. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then the household is, uh, sorry, and his nearest neighbor shall take according uh, to the number of persons according to what each can eat, and shall make your account, your account for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts uh, and the lintel uh, of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head and its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover." For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be for you a memorial day. And you will keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you for your word that we've just read here, that you indeed did provide for the Israelites a substitute, uh, someone else's blood that was uh, slain so that they would be saved as you passed through Egypt judgment. Father, substitutionary atonement might feel like a really big technical term, but as we get into it this morning, please help us to see that it is incredibly precious and incredibly practical for our lives. And Father, we ask this, that you would do this work in the, in the power of your spirit for your son's sake. And we ask this in his name. Amen. So we come to substitutionary atonement as our subject for today, and it's a subject that people come to already with a sense of drawn-inness. 
It's a strange word, I know, but we're drawn into this idea of substitutes. Um, and it's everywhere in the movies we watch. I wonder if you've noticed that. From Marvel's Endgame to Hunger Games to Harry Potter, the movies that we watch celebrate substitutes. Characters who offer themselves up to put themselves in the way of harm, even death, to save another person, another nation, or another group of people. A substitute that steps in for others. And it's often in these moments of the movies that that make us lean in a little bit. It's the moments in the movies where our emotions are heightened and, and as we see someone give their life to save others. Who of you didn't cry? when you saw Jack give his life to save Rose when you watched Titanic. A substitute. He gave his life to save someone else. See, these moments inspire awe and wonder in us. It's why we celebrate Remembrance Day, actually. Um, I wonder if you've thought that before. Remembrance Day, what are we doing? We are commemorating and giving our shared gratitude for people who have stood in the place of war, putting themselves in the way of harm, even in the possible way of death, for the sake of others. I'm going to show you a picture, a bit of a trigger warning. It's, um, it's not the prettiest picture in the world. But here's a picture of a, a young six-year-old boy, Bridger Walker, with his little sister. Uh, last year, about middle of last year, um, he and his little sister were playing in the backyard. And this massive dog came running after them. And this little boy, what he did, he stepped sideways in front of his sister. And the dog jumped up and latched onto his cheek. And he absorbed the whole blow of that dog. He received 90 stitches. And here's what he said after the incident. If someone had to die, I thought it should be me. You see, he offered himself up as a substitute I will step in and take the blow myself so that she doesn't have to. And then, of course, there was a a massive response from Hollywood celebrities uh, praising this kid, offering gifts, offering to come and and see him. Uh, One company even offered him an all-expenses-paid cruise on their luxury ship. Um, It's a lot for a six-year-old. But it does show you something, doesn't it? It shows you that there's something deep in our hearts, deep in our bones, that resonates with the idea of a substitute. And so we have this question this morning, what is it that God has to say about substitutionary atonement? Well, the Bible presents God as the creator of the universe, the creator of heavens and the earth, all things bright and beautiful, all things great and small, And the humanity that he created rebelled against him. They chased after worthless and empty things in this world, and they replaced God. And in the face of a rebellious and lost humanity, God seeks to make atonement with this humanity. Now, uh, a helpful way to, to get yourself to remember what atonement means is to listen to your year two teacher tell you, just sound out the parts of the word. At one mint. Did you get that? At one minute. That's, that's the essence of the word and its meaning. You see, when two people are in conflict with one another, you could say that they're at two minute. There's a divide between them. There's hostility. There's conflict. Uh, there's no sense in which you could say they have a harmonious relationship with one another. 
And so you could say they're at atonement. But what atonement is, is bringing those two parties together so that they are at one. They are in a one relationship with each other, harmonious, joyful relationship. And that is what God is doing with humanity. That is what atonement is, and it's what God is committed to doing with this world. The question we're left with is this. How is God going to make a harmonious relationship between himself and a rebellious humanity that's rejected him and doesn't want anything to do with him? How is he going to do it? Well, what God wants us to see this morning from his word is that he does this through substitution, substitutionary atonement. We're going to see, one, that this is the established pattern of how God worked to reconcile and to atone with the Israelites. And that is the pattern that he works with throughout the Old Testament. And two, we're going to see that God in Jesus provides the fulfillment of that pattern. Jesus is the one through whom God is going to reconcile the world back to himself. You guys ready? Nice. Let's get into it. So the pattern begins with the people of Israel enslaved in Egypt. This is the reading we had before. Pharaoh is the wicked tyrant who enforces slavery, brutal slavery conditions on the Israelites, on God's chosen people. Um, And God hears the cries of the Israelites as they cry out for help. God hears them. And he decides to act decisively to rescue his people, to bring them to himself. You know the story. God strikes the Egyptians with plague after plague, locusts, hailstorms, sickness. God acts as the righteous judge, bringing justice against an evil tyrant. The final strike against Egypt comes with one final chance for Pharaoh to turn back, to release the Israelites, to release God's chosen people from them so that they can go be reunited with their God outside of Egypt. But he refuses. He refuses. And so he incites this final judgment, this final strike from God. This final strike has God himself coming down passing through Egypt and the firstborn son of every household will die. But did you notice, God provides a way of escape for the Israelites. He instructs them to select a one-year-old lamb, one without defect, to slaughter it and to cover their doorposts with its blood. And then God says to them, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood... I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And so the night of the Passover comes, and God passes through Egypt, and the only firstborn males, the only firstborn males whose lives were spared were those in whose houses a little lamb had been slaughtered earlier. See, God passes through Egypt to judge their wickedness. But he only passes over those with the blood of the substitute. God then saves Israel out of Egypt and brings them to himself. And God makes atonement with them through a substitute, 
It's worth noting here that the Israelites were not more righteous than the Egyptians. We know from other parts of the Bibles that the other parts of the Bible that the Israelites served the, the Egyptian gods. They participated in their idolatry and their false worship. And so the Israelites were just as deserving of God's judgment as the rest of the Egyptians. Which tells us something about God, doesn't it? The Egyptians and the Israelites. They were both deserving of his judgment and his justice. Which, tell, which, is, which is, it tells you that God is not passive. It tells you that God's not going to stand back when he sees the wickedness and the sin in humanity. He acts to bring justice. He sees wickedness, he calls it for what it is, and he acts against it. So then how can he make atonement with those who have wickedness in their hearts? How is it that these Israelites in Egypt, that he can call them to himself, even though they're just as sinful as the Egyptians? You guys already know it. It's only through the blood of the substitute. And so here we see that for Israel, the pattern begins with the Passover, a pattern which is then developed uh, as the nation becomes uh, their own nation under God. They become a a people of their own. And God institutes institutes for them what's known as the annual ceremony, the Day of Atonement. National annual ceremonies uh, form national identity. We've just celebrated Remembrance Day. It's one of Australia's animal, annual, not animal, annual ceremonies where we express our unified gratitude and respect for those who have fought in wars before us. It's a day that's meant to unite Australians around common values, isn't it? And in the same way, God designed the Day of Atonement to form and to cultivate particular things in the nation of Israel. It was on this day that the high priest would gather two goats And he would bring them, and they would be a sin offering for the people of Israel. The first goat was slaughtered. Its blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat in the inner sanctuary of the temple. This was to make atonement for the most holy place. So God could be with his people, even though they're a sinful and rebellious people. That was the first goat. And then the the second goat was offered alive. The high priest would have the goat there in front of him and he would lay both of his hands on the head of the goat and he would confess all the sins of the nation over this goat. You might think that might take a very long time. I, I, I wonder if he was speaking just general, generalities rather than going through every specific sin. But he laid his hand and the, the, it was symbolizing that the sin of the nation was being transferred to this goat. The goat was then led out into the wilderness bearing all the sin of the people, and set free. What an odd ceremony. I wonder if you've ever thought about that. The whole nation gathered around to watch a goat slaughtered, and this other goat to be just set free out into the wilderness. It's a very odd ceremony. See, the animals that we kill here in WA, we we want it done out in Avon Valley or, or out in Mount Barker, behind closed doors where... You know, we can just receive the lamb chops that come on our little plastic-covered plate at Coles. That's how we like our animals to be killed. We don't want to see it. 
<clears throat> not so on the Day of Atonement. What was done, this was done in front of the whole nation. Can you imagine the little five-year-olds watching along as they saw this ceremony? Mixed feelings, I imagine, like, oh, I don't want to look, but I can't not look. Oh, that's gross. Oh, that's awesome. What a fascinating thing for a whole nation to do. I wonder what you would be thinking and feeling as you watched on with this ceremony. A goat slaughtered, another one carrying away the sins of the nation. What is it that God's doing? Why has he he established this ceremony for us as a nation to do every year? Well, I wonder if there's a few key things that become really clear as we think about it. So the first one is that the nation of Israel is a sinful nation. They're a nation with a sin problem, aren't they? And that's so clear in the, in the um, ceremony of the Day of Atonement. A goat is slaughtered because they're a sinful people. They need a goat to carry their sins away. The nation of Israel has a sin problem. And secondly, it would be so clear that God can be with his people only through the blood of a substitute. That's the only way. No other way would be possible. And so substitution becomes this deeply embedded idea in the Israelite understanding of how God can make atonement with them. They're a nation of the Passover. They're a nation with this annual ceremony where the sacrifice where they sacrifice a substitute. Israelites uh, eventually find themselves kicked out of the promised land for their persistent sinfulness. And is it any surprise that Isaiah the prophet looks forward and prophesies that the nation's deliverance would come from a suffering servant? One who would be pierced for their transgressions. One who would be crushed for their iniquities. One whose wounds would bring about their healing. You see, the nation will be saved through a suffering servant, a substitute for the nation. A servant will suffer so that the nation won't. So here we have the pattern of substitution firmly embedded in the nation of Israel in the history of the Old Testament. It's so clear. God makes atonement with his people through substitution. This pattern then becomes the pattern that helps us understand the work of the Lord Jesus as we meet him in the pages of the New Testament. 1 John 1, sorry, not 1 John, John 1, 29, John the, John the Baptist, seeing Jesus, says these words, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See what the Passover, the Day of Atonement, and the prophecy of Isaiah proclaimed in shadow John identifies here as the substance. Here is the substitute, one provided by God who will take away the sins of the world. Jesus, the fully human, the fully God person, he is the one who on the cross will be slaughtered 
to take away our sin. Pretty hard to get the full picture just from that one verse, but helpfully we see it also uh, fleshed out a little bit in 1 John 4 verse 10. Have a read, follow along as I read. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This verse fills it out for us, doesn't it? God sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Another word that we're going to try and define. You can't just understand this one by sounding out the parts. It's a little bit more complicated than that. It's not too complicated. It's the word used to describe the appeasing or the pacifying of someone's anger. See, our sin and the sins of the world, they arouse God's righteous anger. Certainly, this is not like human anger that flies off the handle or explodes for no particular reason. This is the anger of God. Anger that is measured and appropriate. Anger that's unrelenting and uncompromising. It's his right and good response to evil and wickedness alone. You see, the the anger that God has towards sin, the sin of the world, is hot and intense. It's measured appropriately to the evil and wickedness that exists in the world. Now, I can see that God's anger can be be hard to swallow. Uh, You may have picked up on the idea that God is love. That's a very good idea to think of God as love. That is true. But some people have thought that that therefore means that God has no anger. And that's a fair thing to think. Like, I can understand how someone could get there. How could God be loving and angry? Well, I think it actually helps to just consider the wickedness that's in the world at the moment. Just have a think about it. I have a friend who lives in Belarus at the moment. Uh, The president um, of that nation, he's fudged the results of the election last year, and he's done it. Every four years, he fudges the results every time to ensure that he remains in power. And do you know how he responds to those who protest against them, against him? He has them imprisoned and tortured simply for standing up for their nation's rights. Closer to home, we all are aware of the story of a little girl, Cleo Smith, who was abducted for 18 days snatched out of her family's tent. Isn't anger the only response that makes sense to the wickedness that we see in the world? Isn't a longing for justice and for God to set the record right a good and appropriate thing to to have within us? And isn't it good and appropriate for the creator of the universe to be angry with the evil and wickedness that exists? It is, isn't it? And such is God's pure and good anger towards the sin and evil of this world. Not only of the world that exists out there, but it's also, we have to be honest with ourselves, wickedness and evil and sin exists in our own hearts too, doesn't it? It's there. Just reflect on your life. And you can see that it's not always other people that's the problem. Sin exists in us. 
And so, God sends his son to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. He will be the one who will absorb the full measure of God's anger towards sin in himself. That is the reality that exists behind the cross. That's, that's what's going on when Jesus is dying and hanging on the cross. Yes, yes, he did. He endured the lashings of a whip on his back and the, the humiliation and the shame of being publicly exposed as weak and foolish. For God the Son, that would be humiliation enough. A humiliation beyond belief for the God who created the universe. But the physical, emotional, and social aspects of being murdered on a cross are only the beginning. You see, Jesus experienced the full dimensions of God's anger. The separation from his presence that our sin deserves. See, he is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. This is substitutionary atonement. The heart of God's work on the cross. That he suffers the justice and anger of God in our place. So that in him we might receive God's favor. God's embrace. God's welcome. If we put our trust in his substitute. It's probably worth clarifying at this point a misunderstanding that gets uh, uh, that's out there is that Jesus was somehow coerced by God against his will to go to the cross to die for us. As though it was something that Jesus didn't really want to do almost as a naughty child being carried along to the cross. No, that's far from the truth. The Lord Jesus gave his life willingly John 10, 18 tells us that he gave up his life of his own accord. He did this willingly. And so what we see on the cross is God the Father and God the Son working together to do everything necessary to save us. This is a unified work between them. And so given the truth of this substitutionary atonement, how what we respond put really clear for us in Romans chapter 3. Let me read this out for you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. How do we receive this gift? It tells us it's a gift. It's a grace. Justified by his grace as a gift. How do we receive it? We receive it with empty hands. We receive it with faith. We trust that it is effective. We trust that that it's true and real and trust that it will work for us. We trust that it's true about us, that we are sinners. And it's true that what Jesus has done can take that away. And it's the only response that makes any sense. So God has done everything necessary. God the Father... His anger towards sin was taken by God the Son. There's no sense in which you can contribute to that. The only response that makes sense is to come with empty hands, to come with faith, to trust in him. 
And so that's the truth of substitutionary atonement. It's a fundamental understanding for the gospel. Fundamental to understanding what happened on the cross. And so to ask the question then, how does this transform our lives, is as high and as wide as asking, how does Christianity affect your life? You could be here forever. It doesn't, it touches every part of our life. Substitutionary atonement. Thankfully, in God's word, he's, he's narrowed that a little bit. So we can actually grab a hold of things and think, how does this land for me in my life? So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and we're going to find five things that this does for us as we grab this truth of substitutionary atonement. It's going to come hard and fast. You guys ready? Great. No one's ready. I didn't hear anyone, but that's okay. I'll just preach it to myself. I need this. Here we go. First one. God's love. We just read it before, didn't we? In this is love. God's work of substitutionary atonement is the measure of God's love for you. Look at the depth of the humiliation that he faced. Look at the intensity of suffering that he went through. Think about the anger that he absorbed on your behalf on the cross. And as you see that, see God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, moved by a love, determined to do everything necessary to save you. Look at the cross and see that. Romans 5, 8 puts it this way. God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you ever question if God loves you? Do you ever wonder if the, the truth of God's love could actually be true of me? So you could look at your circumstances or you could look at your feelings and, and, and try and look, for, look to those things and think, does God love me? What you'll find is that God loves you only sometimes and only so far. But come and look at the cross. Look at the cross and you'll see a love so abundant, so full for you. So come and look at the cross. That's the gauge. That's the measure of God's love for you. He has done everything necessary to save you. That's number one. Number two, guilt and shame. Guilt and shame have this unique ability to be sticky. Thoughts and actions of the past can sting our conscience, can't they? Things that we've said or done to others that we know that we shouldn't have. And the guilt and shame that we feel associated to that can, can stick to us. Like the, there's nothing that can get, get rid of them. And not, not only do they have this great ability to be stickable, like they stick to us, but they have, they're, they're an incredible burden as well. I wonder if you guys have felt that before. You see, some of us have come to faith in Jesus from a past life of openly embracing a sinful lifestyle. And we carry around the guilt and the shame associated with the things that we've done in the past. There's others of us here who are going through the recovery process of growing up with our parents the poor decisions they've made, or perhaps the, time that they've, the times they've leveraged guilt or shame against us to, to correct our behavior 
and somehow coerce our behavior. At worst, this was done in the name of good Christian parenting. And so as a result, these these feelings of guilt and shame, they become amplified in our hearts and in our minds. There are many different reasons why we might feel guilt or shame for things we've done in the past. And if that's you here this morning, come and hear these words. Come and hear God's word to you this morning. Here's Colossians chapter 2. Have a read along with me. He says this. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. See, this passage doesn't deny that we come to Jesus with baggage. It doesn't deny the fact that we come to Jesus with history with sinful things that we've done in the past. It says it right there, you were dead in your trespasses. But isn't its message so clear and so good? You are forgiven. The record of debt is cancelled. It was nailed to the cross. Jesus, your substitute, has paid it all. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Come to the cross. Come to Jesus. And you will find forgiveness and cleansing for your sins. So that's number two. Number three, we get to whose you are. Substitutionary atonement transforms our identity and therefore the one to whom we give all of our loyalty. Have a look at uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 15. It says this, For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Did you see that line in there? It says, One has died for all, therefore all have died. Jesus died for all as a substitute, and because he died in our place, it tells us here that it was as though we were dying there with him. Jesus died publicly and painfully. We died uh, privately, invisibly, and painlessly. And so what's what's the outcome of that? What's the thing that makes most sense? Would it make sense to go back and live for someone who's died? yourself who's died on the cross would it make sense to go and live for that person anymore no it says there in verse 15 that those who might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised you are his Paul puts it in another spot uh i've flipped over i haven't got it in my notes it's right here let me read it for you paul puts it elsewhere you are not your own you were bought with a price So glorify God in your body. You see, the world we live in, the the lie that we often believe and and the lie that this world loves to hang on to is that our deepest loyalty is to ourselves. Our deepest loyalty is to our deepest and truest self. What an exhausting and empty way to live. 
No, you belong to God. He is the one that you need to be loyal to. Don't think that that's, that's not for your good. That is the best thing for you. You were made to live for him. And so can I invite you, come and enjoy the freedom of not living for yourself. Come and enjoy the freedom of living for the one who loves you and gave his son for you. Live for him, not for yourself. That's number three. Number four, how are you guys going? Still cracking? We're up to number four. Our only hope before God. Please don't fool yourself. There is no righteousness within you that will make you acceptable before God. You just won't find it. You don't have the righteousness. You don't have it within you to make yourself acceptable before God. Have a think about it. Your life needed nothing less than the Son of God, the fully divine, fully human Jesus Christ, to come down from heaven to die as your substitute to save you. Do you think there could have been any other way? Think about what that says about you, about the drastic measures that were needed to save you. There is no righteousness within you that makes you acceptable to God. Only that which is given to you by him in Jesus. You see, to trust in your own righteousness, or maybe not just to trust in your own righteousness, or just to say that everything's going to be okay. I don't need to worry about the God stuff until I'm 20, till I'm 30, till I'm 40, till I'm 50. I'll wait until God comes and, and then everything will become clear. You know, see, see that, that is hopeless. It'd be like building a house of straw next to a lake of fire. Utterly hopeless. There is only one hope before our God. Romans 8.1 says this, There is therefore now no condemnation. For who? For those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no other option. Your only hope before God is to be found in him and in him alone. That was number four. Number five to wrap up. Wonder and praise. The movies we watch and the stories like the one that we talked about with Bridget Walker reveal to us that there is something deep in our bones, something deep in our hearts that wants to celebrate and to praise acts of substitution. The affections of our hearts cannot be unaffected when we see these acts of self-giving and of love for another. Is it then any surprise for us to discover, to discover that the God of the universe, the one in whose image we are created, is a God who comes down to die as our substitute. What a mystery. Love so divine, so gracious, so extreme, that God, the immortal one, dies for me. Those gathered around the throne of God in the book of Revelation are in heaven proclaiming this. Worthy is the lamb who was slain 
to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honour and glory and blessing. Amen. He is worthy of our praise and as you look at what he's done on the cross, you will be filled with wonder and delight as you see a God who came down to die for you. Shall we pray? Let's pray. Our Father, we behold you in all your glory as the God who would send his Son, fully divine, fully human, to die for me, to die for us. This is glory too great for us, and so please give us strength. Give us the strength to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled with all your fullness. Father, for endless days we shall sing your praise. Amen.